You're listening to The Commons Podcast. For more information on events, serving opportunities, financial giving, and community groups, visit flagstaffcommons.com. Hello again, Commons family. Welcome to our digital service. Uh, We really hope that you feel welcome. The Commons uh, is the church for everyone, and we really mean that. Absolutely, whoever you are, whatever you believe, we're glad that you found us today, or if you're part of our family for a long time, we're glad that you took the time to tune in with us. Uh, We love to pray for other churches uh, around the world or in town, and uh, today we're going to pray for Spring Hill Baptist Church. We just love that our expression of the faith is just a tiny piece of something so much bigger and diverse and beautiful. And we love our siblings uh, all over this town, especially, and around the world. But uh, those that meet at Spring Hill Baptist Church, their pastor, Simi Clayton, we're going to pray for them today in solidarity and love and hope that they know how much uh, we love them. So if you're the praying type, join me and we're going to lift them up. God, thank you uh, for this Sunday of celebration a week after Easter, uh, in the Eastertide season. Thank you for Spring Hill Baptist Church here in town. Thank you for Pastor Simi and his great leadership. Thank you for the privilege I've had to worship with them, Lord. Thank you for their openness. Uh, thank you for their service to the uh, their community and this town and uh, the way they show your kingdom to the world. We love them. Lord, let them know how much we love them, and we pray for them that they will experience your presence, not just this morning when they met, but also every time they gather and and wherever they go, especially in this uh, unique time. Lord, we also pray today that you would open our minds, our hearts, our ears, and our eyes for what you might have for us in the book of John. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I wanted to begin today by saying thank you. I I think you guys probably just watched the uh, video from Fill the Truck last week, and I just want to say I'm so proud of you. So many of you, it was so fun coming up to the office on Wednesday, first of all, just to see humans, which is a nice change of pace, Uh, but to see so many of you sacrificially bring so much stuff. We overfilled that truck, and, and when Sadie and I went over to Mountaintop Church and unloaded all that, as you saw in the very last scene, just filling two rooms with your generosity uh, and your love for our family that meets that lives out on the Navajo Nation was really touching to me, and I just wanted to begin by saying thank you. These are definitely very strange times. I think for me, one of the weirdest things is the experience of having to be an expert in everything when you're in quarantine. For instance, just today, I cut my own hair because for me, if it goes about three weeks past a haircut, it's just crazy long, Fabio, shaggy. And so I used my beard trimmer today, cut my own hair, scissored it up in the mirror. I'm sure the back looks terrible. Thankfully, it's a front-facing camera. Uh, but now I'm a professional hairstylist, which I never thought I would be before, which is pretty crazy. Um, and then I also this week became a doctor because uh, my son Blaze came in. I was cooking breakfast, and he was crying, and he said he broke his hand. And I looked over and saw the evidence for what he was worried about. His thumb was in the wrong place. It was back up on the back of his hand. And I realized that he had dislocated it because of where it was mangled. And uh, there is zero chance at all that we are going to the ER right now. And uh, so I told him to look away and just went and put his thumb back in place. (laughs) I bet bet some of you squeamish ones really like that sound effect and that thought. Uh, So now I'm an ER doctor. And so I should probably get paid a lot more for all that I do to save thumbs on children. Uh, I kid, but you know we're we're all growing in this strange way. We're learning. I'm a new, I'm a video editor now. I've spent 
unfathomable amounts of hours uh, learning Adobe Premiere and putting videos together for Easter service and uh, the food, the fill the truck thing and partnering with Sadie to put these Sunday things together. So we're all learning new things, which is a positive, but hopefully it's also making us uh, deeply, deeply grateful for the, the experts in our life that we're missing out on right now, because I'm definitely not an expert, which you probably don't need me to state if you're seeing my haircut at this time. Uh, but that's the life we're all living. Today's going to be a, a cool Sunday in the liturgical calendar. Sometimes we follow the church calendar that everyone's reading together, and we're doing so today. Because Easter doesn't quite end, just like Christmas and Epiphany in the liturgical season. They don't end on the day of Christmas. It's usually the beginning. And this is Eastertide, the second Sunday after Easter. And what I like about the reading I'm going to choose today in John chapter 20 is it very specifically refers to one week, part of it, that happens one week after Jesus resurrects, which is the week that we're in. Um, so we're going to dive right into John chapter 20, and uh, I'll stop along the way, and uh, hopefully we'll get the verses up on the screen, or you can open your Bibles, whatever you want to do. It's a, it's a free country. Uh, but this is John chapter 20, and we're going to start in verse 19. Uh, it says this, on the evening of that first day of the week, so now just to let you know, this is actually still the original Easter Sunday before we go a week later. This is Easter Sunday itself. Jesus has just risen. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Uh, that's one verse. Uh, I think there's a lot to unpack in that verse, though. First of all, it's the first day of the week. It's Sunday. It's the first uh, resurrection Sunday or Easter ever, and the disciples are together. Now remember, uh, these disciples that we're about to experience are the ones who abandoned Jesus. They weren't faithful, per se. These are the ones that ran and hid after he was arrested. Uh, they're not exactly strong characters. That, uh, they're probably confused about everything that's that's going on. And it says the doors were locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, and I'm compelled to take a small time out here because John's gospel... Um, especially in the last few centuries, has probably come under some careful criticism about anti-Semitism because in John's gospel, oftentimes it's the Jews translated out of the Greek who are the bad guys. They're basically the ones killing Jesus. But there's a couple things that I just want to point out here to fight anti-Semitism, especially in the current climate we live in where somehow, literally, Nazis have come back to the forefront, neo-Nazis and white supremacists and anti-Semitism still exists in, in hatred in this world. That's not what the Gospel of John's about. Remember, everyone, even the good women and good men are Jewish people in this story. And it's really important to note that in this case, it was these early disciples hiding from these powerful Jewish leaders who were just one half of the group that crucified Jesus. But it, it wouldn't be too many centuries after this where Christians became the powerful religion and Jewish people were hiding in locked doors uh, behind Christians. So it's important that we always address the, the elephant, in this case the dark elephant in the room, that anti-Semitism has come from Christians and it should always be repented of. There's never a time, whether it was Nazi Germany or any other time, where any group of people ever, because the church for everyone, the kingdom of God is for everyone, are excluded on basis of race or belief or anything like that. So I don't mean to take a tangent there. We're back from that. But this is not anti-Semitism. It's just the facts of what was going on in this particular day. They were hiding from the Jewish leaders. And then it says, Jesus came and stood among them, or the Greek stood in the middle of them. I think it's a better translation. Um, I like this because I think there's something that we can pull out of this verse 
uh, that's bigger than this moment. Jesus stood in the middle of them. He was just in the middle of two robbers on the cross. John, as a literary, um, as a writer, he used these literary devices often between paradoxes of light and dark, but Jesus in the middle of things. Because I think part of the essence of the gospel, his fourth gospel, is that Jesus should be the center. And the reason I like that is because any Christianity that is not Christocentric, that is any version of a religion called Christianity that isn't centered around Christ, to me, is very dangerous. Um, I see that in modern uh, white evangelicalism in the United States of America. Many of us are perplexed at the way in which a version of Christianity in this country can blatantly support racist, xenophobic fear of others and foreigners, um, anti uh, poverty, you know, the, or the poor, anti-the poor measures in, in politics or government or ideas. How on earth a Christianity could line itself up with that it, it, unless Jesus isn't at the center? Because if Jesus is at the center of our Christianity, the Prince of Peace, who's about to speak peace, can't be about war and militarism. The, the one who lifted up the poor and challenged the rich and the powerful can't be now the rich and powerful who are oppressing the poor. So that's why I think it's important to take little hints in Scripture about Jesus being in the middle. I just kind of like that, that phrase. But then I love this. He says, peace be with you. This is shalom elachem in the Hebrew or Aramaic in Hebrew. The shalom is, I think, a bigger word than peace. Peace is a big word. It's a beautiful word. But shalom in the Hebrew has this um, deeper sense of the way things should be that includes nonviolence and forgiveness and peace. And it's this almost active presence. And I love that Jesus stands in the middle of these people who betrayed him. And the first thing he says is, hey, why, why did you guys abandon me on the cross? None of that. He offers them what Jesus always does, unconditional grace. Shalom alechem. Peace be with you. And I, I think we could just meditate on that. You can make that your mantra if you're a meditating type. Peace be with you. And, and especially to think about God or the divine or love, actually saying that to you, peace be with you, especially in an unearned sense. They didn't do anything. Jesus just shows up. Doors were locked, so there's this kind of mystical... Um, duality and paradox of a, of a body, a resurrection body that's very physical as we're about to see, but also ubiquitous light can go through doors. I don't want to go too far down that mystery because there's a whole lot of fun conversations to be had, but he's there. He's with them in the middle of them, Christocentric, and he says, Shalom, peace be with you. And then it says, after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. In John's gospel, he told them earlier that joy would come later. He would come back and there would be great joy. And, and the word here is literally filled with joy. And I think sometimes we use that phrase in English, and we don't actually think about what a beautiful turn of phrase that is, to be filled with joy, a cup that's filled with something. I'm actually going to cheat and take a drink. No eggs will pop out of my mouth this time if you watched our Easter service. Um, but to be filled to the brim with joy because Jesus just showed up, offered them grace. He gives them um, peace, and then they're overjoyed as he shows them his hands and his feet. So this is the physical part that I think is so central, and many commentators over the last two millennia have talked about, rightly so, Jesus offering now his physical presence to them. I mean, one of the things that I want to talk about right away, and we're going to come across this throughout this whole chapter, is that whatever the mystery is of ubiquitous light and resurrection and new bodies and, and physical tangibleness, is it's amazing that the body of Christ contained his wounds and his scars. I think there's something really deep in that. I think there's a lot that we could say and think about 
and have conversations about in a perfect resurrected new creation life, still being identified not by Jesus' nose or his hair or his skin color, but by his wounds, uh, by his scars. I think that says something about our own wounds and scars that I think is really beautiful, but I'm going to keep moving here. They're overjoyed when they're experiencing Jesus. It says, again, Jesus said, peace be with you. Anytime you see a repetition in Greek or Hebrew in the ancient world, it's it's emphasis. So Jesus is really emphasizing his message post-resurrection, conquering death through death, this whole new world order, this whole experience of life and kingdom. He keeps saying Peace, shalom, is the beginning message, which I think is really, really great. So he says it again, peace be with you. And then he says this really incredible statement. As the Father has sent me, just as the Father has sent me, is actually a better translation of the Greek, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Strange, um, powerful, interesting paragraph here. First of all, it's really beautiful that he says, just as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. And that's a much better translation than the NIV that I think we're popping up on the screen somewhere right here. Uh, But just as means just as. So think about the mystery of what it means that the Father, Jesus' word for God or the divine or the, the original, the Elohim, Daddy, this parental connection, this oneness, this oceanic oneness. In what way did that send Jesus to be, according to John's gospel, anyone who believes in him will have an everlasting or an overflowing life, just as God the divine sent Jesus, he's also sending us in the same way. That's a really big statement to think about, um, that God, love, transcendence, eminence, all the things that we could fail with language to encapsulate is sending us to bring life and everlasting life and overflowing life and springs of living water. That's a really, really big statement. And I think it's important. I think we overlook this sometimes, especially in our Western kind of platonic, soulish, religious minds, how really shocking it was that Jesus would say, he, he told them just as when I'm sending you out, when he sent out the 72, like if he who receives you receives me. It's the same thing. He said in John 14, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. And then he says, I want you to be one with me as I am with the Father. There's this idea in which the divinity, the divine dance, whatever the mystery is of, of Christ, it's it's also offered to us. We're supposed to be a part of that divine dance. And I love that he's given it to these betraying disciples right here who don't deserve it. It's just a grace. And the next verse says, he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And remember, as I point out, often the words spirit and breath are the same thing, pneuma. And so there's this play on words that John is using. And it's also so grace-laden that Jesus just breathes on them. They've done nothing. In fact, one of my favorite commentators, Dale Bruner, on the Gospel of John, says the only way they could have not got the Holy Spirit is they, if they would have ducked and dodged his breath, which is <laughs> comical and not possible because breath is just so unconscious. It's just so offered and, and filled with grace. And Jesus breathes on them the wind of God. And, and and recall here Ezekiel 36 and 37, a couple weeks ago, the dry bones where Ezekiel talks about God breathing life into them, which of course was a callback to the original creation where God breathed into the dust and lungs and life came into it. So here, the author of life is breathing life, spirit, breath into these undeserving people who betrayed him. So think of all the things that he's just pouring out on them. He's Offered in them his presence. He's offering them peace. 
He's offering them mission to go be this life-giving force in such a way. And he's also giving them the priesthood of all believers that when they forgive sins, sins are forgiven. This was really, really incredibly dangerous things to be saying. Only God alone can forgive sins. And now he's offering more of this divine dance and saying, no, it's actually you. When you forgive people, they're forgiven by you, the divine in you. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. It's a real game. You can't just put it all off on God because we're all wrapped up in that spiral. So that's all Easter Sunday. But I think what's really fun is to dive further into the text, what comes next the following week. In verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, which means the twin in Greek because Jesus was a nickname giver. He loved to give people nicknames. So now Thomas the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples or the friends when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. I mean, this is kind of beautiful because it's one of the first times they've received all this grace and peace and shalom. And the first thing they want to do with someone they have a real relationship with, a deep friendship, is say, I want to tell you about what we've experienced. And so they're sharing that. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my fingers where the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. This is the famous Doubting Thomas. Over the years of the commons, I come back to this passage, even sometimes when it's not in the liturgical readings. I love Doubting Thomas. I love that in the very ancient early Gospels 2,000 years ago, written into the narrative is basically us. And sometimes I think, almost in the same way you think of Greek, the twins, Castor and Pollux, and the stars, this ancient world, the the, the idea of him being called a twin, I don't know if he literally was a twin. I don't know if it's a me- metaphorical device to say he's a twin with us, the doubting reader, almost as if John wanted his gospel to be for those that are born like me who are more skeptical and scientific, the modern woman or the modern man. Um, I love it. <laughs> I like thinking about all those things. I like that he just is like, hey, you're all sincere, you're great, you're my friends, and you're telling me about Jesus, but uh, it's not enough for me. I'm going to need evidence. And then it says here, a week Later, it says eight days in the Greek. It's an ancient world thing, but it's literally one exact week later. His disciples were in the house again, probably hiding, afraid again. Now Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom Aleichem. Again, it's the same story repeated for emphasis. At this time, there's a difference because now doubting Thomas is with them. So he says, Peace be with you. Then, and and I like Dale Bruner's translation, immediately, because that's one of the kind of transitions that carries these gospel stories forward is immediately the the next thing that happened. Thomas didn't respond. He didn't ask Jesus in his heart. He didn't do anything, just like the other disciples. Grace just breathed onto him because immediately he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Um, I like it because Thomas, again, does nothing. Jesus, either in some sort of divine omniscience, or maybe the other disciples have told Jesus, or maybe they were praying about it. Who knows the mystery of what's unspoken in John's gospel? He knows about Thomas's doubting, and he affirms that doubting. He lets him and receives that and gives it grace. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things of this story. I have talked about this in the past, and I'm going to talk about it again right now. Doubting is part of faith. This is really something I'm passionate about. Faith is not the absence of doubts. It never has been. That's a very 
Cartesian, foundationalistic, terrible way of epistemology or gaining knowledge. Forget all that. It's a bad way to think about faith. The most interesting, vibrant, life-changing, transformative faith includes doubt. It's the best kind because it's not blind faith. Even childlike faith includes doubts. I, I love watching my children and I love their doubts. They are filled with awe and wonder and faith and doubt. And that's what faith is because faith is action. It actually is a verb in the Greek. Pistos is this word of doing something and it includes doubts. And I love that. I just wanted to pause and derail because I think that's one of the most, the minimal at least of what we should take away from this story is that this narrative is about doubt, doubt being a part of the very best kind of faith. And the way we know that is Thomas's response. It says, Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. This is a big verse. You know, in the four Gospels, this is the only time someone directly, specifically, explicitly says my God or calls Jesus God to his face. Now, don't get me wrong. There's lots of other hints and what we call escalating Christology throughout the Gospels of who alone can forgive sins. I'll show you I can forgive sins because I, I am God. I think of the I am statements that was the name of God throughout John's Gospel. Before Abraham was, I am, it says and John 8, there's these massive moments of the divinity, but never out of one of the main historical characters' mouth, my Lord and my God. And this would be Kurios over here, Elohim, all of these ancient names. And it's, it's beautiful because you have the humanity, and divinity, the humanity and the divinity of Christ, my Lord. You're my Lord, the Nazarene prophet that I'm following. I will follow your teachings. But my God, which is so big. And I think it's the perfect climax of this gospel that began pretty incredible with the prologue that in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. We already have this divinity, but it really builds narratively and literarily, is that a word, all the way to this moment where Thomas is saying, my Lord and my God. So you have this escalating Christology, which is beautiful, but I also love that it's my Lord and my God. So on one hand, you have this incredible theology. On this other hand, you have this just personal my you know, our little toddler at our house right now, uh, she says my everything. She's in the my phase, uh, my this, my that. And it's that simple. It's that childlike. When Thomas touched the wounds, the physical wounds, he was transformed and he it became my Lord and my God. Here's why I love this one verse so much. Because in it, we have this kind of stream underneath the surface about the divine. So many questions about who God is. Uh, I had a great friend, a conversation with a friend on the trail today when we were going out rock climbing, which I'll talk about in just a second. We were asking about what actually is God. But in this statement where G Jesus is standing in front of this beloved disciple filled with doubt, my Lord and my God to me says God is this transcendent out there. We can never have enough words. We can never speak enough. We can never wrap our mind around an analogy or language or religions or art or songs. We could never fully encapsulate this transcendent God, creator, these words we can't grasp. But then the my Lord is also this eminent presence of God. This is the divine dance. This is Thomas being wrapped up into that grace, breathed onto him, transcendence and eminence, which means way out there, but also close, beyond, but also within. That to me is paradox that makes Christianity keep getting better and richer and deeper. After this incredible statement, then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me and yet have believed. This is really kind of a beautiful ending to this particular passage that we're talking about here because, first of all, you can tell John's heart 
for the people like us who are reading this later. He even knew when he was writing this. There's going to be people who don't get Thomas's experience. And what I love is that Jesus slips back into the Beatitudes here. Remember the Beatitudes, the most famous probably speech ever given. Blessed are the poor, the meek, they'll inherit the world. Well, here he's giving like a final Beatitude out of place, not on the Sermon about. And it's for you. and It's for me. He's saying not blessed are the poor who are blessed, God's preferential preference for the poor, or the meek, or the pure in heart. But here he's saying blessed are those who believe and experience this divine dance who don't get to physically touch Jesus. That's, that's you, and that's me. And Jesus gave us a special beatitude, which I love. I think that's something that can just wash over us today from the liturgical reading that we're blessed by Jesus without having doing anything, just for having not been there that day. Uh, we get a little extra love and credit and grace and shalom passed on to us. Well, so what? What do we do with this passage? What sort of conversation can we have today? Well, one of the things that I want us to think about that I think is so important about this doubt-laden faith is that I think that when we think of our own life, um, I-, I told you I would come back to the story of rock climbing today. Today I was really, really proud of myself. I'm just bragging here. Went out rock climbing with the kids, and I took on, um, out at the pit, uh, the climb Mr. Slate, which I've never done before. It's a 510, which is a little harder than what I'm used to. And we, we as you lead climb and you try to go higher and higher, there's this particular overhang that's really difficult to get over. And I ended up being the one that had to over climb, climb over this overhang. And then you, when you're lead climbing, you're climbing above a clip. And if you fall, you fall double the distance from the clip plus that. And it's really scary. You're safe. You're not going to fall the whole time. And I love doing things like this because that kind of outdoor activity is invigorating to me. I love the rush of it, even though there's it's just perceived danger. In a way, there's a little danger of hitting the wall or something, but not death. And uh, as I climbed over this ledge that was a little out of my range and, and lead climb this whole thing, I was absolutely terrified and goofy. I got my daughter was trying to take cool pictures of me from the side, and uh, and I was taking pictures of them when they were climbing. But I don't want pictures of when I was lead climbing the top of this for me scary climb because. When I got up above the last part, and there was about 20 foot from the clip, and I was going handhold to handhold and trembling, and I got to the top ledge to get up to the top chains, I just kind of blubber wailed over the top. I didn't look cool at all. It was messy. It was gross. But it was exhilarating. I gave a big barbaric yop, for back, lack of a better word, when I was on top of that cliff because I was so excited to be alive and clip into the top anchors. And it was messy and filled with doubt and terror, And I think it was faith. I think that it was a a better version of faith than kind of what I was taught about religion growing up. And and the so what for us today, when I think about doubting Thomas, and I think about all the beauty of this unearned grace and shalom breathed over us in this mission, in this presence, in this physical body, in the incorporation of our wounds being part of our identity and our perfect self, I just want to invite all of you to be a part of messy faith. You know, I've enjoyed being a pastor in this church for years, filled with people who are tired of faith, that are hurt by church and broken and don't know how to pray anymore. And what I want to challenge you to do today is when you don't know how to pray anymore, pray messy. When you don't know how to serve anymore, serve messy, filled with doubt and fear. When you don't know how to give, give messy. When you don't know what the purpose is of your life, 
Take your messy, doubt-filled faith and give it legs. Go do it. It's action. And I think that's the beauty of the story of Thomas, is that we can just go do stuff. Fill trucks, even if you don't know what you believe. Let's go take care of the Navajo Nation or the shelter services or the family services. Let's go be activists politically for climate change and, and immigration. And let's serve and let's call our elders who may be alone right now and speak truth in their life. Because you're messy, scared voice might be the very voice of God and all of its woundedness. The last thought I want to think about, very specific to our time in the coronavirus right now, is I don't want us to get too used to online church. Um, and what I mean by that, to transition to communion, is I love this. I really have enjoyed sitting with my family and, and watching church all in one segment. Um, but it can never, ever replace uh, the, the physical touch that Thomas experienced those days, the overjoy the disciples have the physical presence of Jesus. We are the hands and the feet of God, and we need hugs and touches. Not yet. We're going to stay safe. We're going to follow good science and practices, and we're going to beat this thing together, even though we're going to lose some along the way, and we're going to mourn and grieve together. But I'm dreaming of a day uh, when online church is something we remember fondly, but we get to hug each other again and be physically together. In the meantime... We can still have the physical presence of God in, in the sacrament, in communion. One of the strange things that I love about sacrament it is the physical body of Christ and the physical cracker and the physical wine. And so if you want to pause this right now or if you're watching it live, just run to the kitchen real quick and, and grab a piece of bread or a cracker or some wine or grape juice. Because that physical thing reminds us that um, this kingdom of God we're talking about, um, it's real. It's here. It's now. And it's in you. It's beating in your heart. Uh, it's the blood in your veins. It's the breath in your lungs. It's Christ's love. It's transcendent. It's imminent. And that moves me. Um, and I hope that the sacrament can move you today. I want to invite you. We believe all are welcome at the table of the Lord at the commons. Uh, it doesn't matter who you are or what you believe or where you've been or what you've done. You could never outsend the love of God. Um, and we also believe in an inclusive table for all races, all genders, all orientation. Everybody's welcome at Jesus' big beautiful table, and it, it's a connection point. And uh, I hope you experience that today. I'm going to pray over this element, and then we'll have some more beautiful art and song uh, for you guys to experience together. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much uh, for John 20. What a great passage today. Thank you that the whole church, hundreds of millions, billion over people are, are reading this passage today. Thank you that you love our doubts, that you affirm them. Thank you uh, for a story that tells us that you offer us mercy, your physical presence. Uh, you offer us mission and purpose. You offer us oneness, uh, all of that with the messiness of wounds and doubt. Something seems too good to be true. And Lord, we receive it today. And at the communion table today, uh, even though we're physically distanced, Lord, let us know that we are never spiritually distanced. Lord, let us remember that we can have your breath and presence right now, right where we are together. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. Uh, free us, Lord, from ourself. Let us die to self so we can be born in resurrection again and again, even the second Eastertide Sunday that it just keeps happening, birthing forth a new life and breath. And we want to receive you in these elements today together. We love you and thank you so much for the gift of sacrament and this gift of music that we'll enjoy together right now in Jesus' name.